Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, the co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. You know, Tyler, one of the cool things about the ocean coastal space that we haven't talked a lot about, we've done some of it, is the shipping industry. Yeah. And uh, particularly the service vessels and the economy that surrounds the working shorefront, working uh, shipping in America. And uh, we've got an expert to talk about that today. And I'm really kind of looking forward to learning more about just what's going on in the American shipping industry around the U.S. No, it's it's a fascinating space. And Peter, we've talked about it so many times right here on this very program how the American shoreline is changing. Uh, boy, we've been talking about the offshore wind development across the Northeast and now out West in California and off Washington. How are these things gonna be built? We talked to Bo Delp about that on our Labor Day special. All the jobs that are gonna be created, some of those jobs are going to be created making new OSVs, offshore service vessels, that are actually the vessels that go out and construct this equipment and OSVs are not new, Peter. Uh, it turns out, no. OSVs, the U.S. OSV fleet has been a really a foundational element of our whole energy system, uh, really beginning with natural gas. So today we have an excellent guest who's going to walk us through what this fleet is, the capabilities it has, and how, if we were to maybe think about this fleet a little differently we could use it to help uh, respond to natural disasters and man-made disasters. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to learn here. And uh, Tyler, I have to say, I believe our guest is someone that you met in Door County, Wisconsin, wasn't it, on your trip up to uh, the Great Lakes? That's correct. I, I met our guest uh, up in Door County, and I was immediately, I immediately... Uh, knew that I would be friends with this person who I'm excited, Peter, to have you introduce. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, joining us today on the American Shoreline podcast is Chad Furman. Uh, Chad is a self-described, I love this, from your, from your LinkedIn page, Chad. He is a consultant. He is an engineer, a frequent writer for the uh, Maritime Executive, a fine publication, and other uh, marine transportation uh, journals. He is a catalyst, an overthinker. I love that, Chad. Uh, Chad Furman is an expert in uh, marine shipping, particularly the OSV sector, and uh, it's going to be a cool show today. Absolutely, Peter. Before we get into it, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today are brought to you by Geodynamics, an NV5 company specializing in providing accurate surveys of complex coastal environments worldwide. Driven by marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing, our researchers use the latest technology to provide meticulous data products to support our clients and answer their toughest questions. Geodynamics carefully designs and executes a variety of hydrographic, geophysical, sub-bottom, and near-shore surveys using our fleet of customized vessels and sensor configuration. You can find us at nv5geospatial.com. Geodynamics, delivering solutions, improving lives. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter for our latest updates from around the American shoreline. Like what you're hearing and want to support the network? Sponsorship packages are now available. Go to coastalnewstoday.com 
slash advertising to learn more. Chad, welcome to the American Shoreline podcast, you overthinker. I appreciate you being on the show. Thank you guys very much. I appreciate that. That's uh, that's quite the introduction. I'm, I'm uh, afraid you may have uh, overestimated yourselves here with me, <laughs> but I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Well, we're we're pleased to have you on and uh, and to learn about uh, this particular sector of shipping on the American shoreline. Uh, if you would be so kind, before we dive into the subject matter, could you talk a little bit about your background? As a coastal professional, uh, introduce our audience to uh, to your work over the past twenty plus years. Yeah, I uh, so I graduated from the Merchant Marine Academy, U.S. Merchant Marine Academy in Kings Point, New York, in nineteen ninety eight, uh, almost twenty five years ago now, and uh, started sailing immediately out of out of school. I uh, had Coast Guard engineer's license, third engineer's license at the time, and got a job with a company known as, as Oceaneering uh, out of Houston, Texas, and sailed with them for 10 years. And then in 2008, uh, I came shoreside as a consultant, primarily in the dynamic positioning sector, which might be a topic for a whole different uh, podcast maybe, but uh, I can explain it a little bit here in a, in a bit. But um uh, started out as a consultant then, and I've been doing that ever since, pretty much as an independent, but I've also had roles with uh, classification societies like DNV and Bureau Veritas. Um, but uh, otherwise, I've been independent and uh, just kind of taking on subcontractor roles with with clients that range from the federal government to other service providers to insurance companies, you name it, doing a, a wide range of activities. Well, I just want a, a very interesting background, and it begins, uh, Chad, with the with the Merchant Marine Academy. Now, before then, though, what 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 got you interested in the Merchant Marine Academy, and what was? Can you explain what the Merchant Marine Academy is? So, the uh, one of the questions I've been confronted with before is, "You're you're from Wisconsin. What made you want to get into the maritime industry?" And that's something that I know you and I discussed it when we met in Door County that. There's 800 miles of coastline in Wisconsin and even more if you consider the inland waterways. So Wisconsin and the Midwest in general around the Great Lakes are very much maritime states. So the industry is there. It's just kind of cleverly hidden underneath uh, whatever day-to-day activities people picture happening in the Midwest. So that was uh, there's been an interest there from my youth, but... Uh, growing up, I did want to go into the Navy, actually, and uh, Kings Point is one of the five service academies, so it's like West Point or Annapolis. When you graduate, you can be commissioned into uh, any branch of the armed services, which, which is where Kings Point differs from the other service academies. So I decided to, to kind of go that direction to keep my options open if I wanted to go in the Navy, which was originally my intent then that's fantastic. I had that option. Um, but it turned out after a few years of wearing a uniform, I decided that following orders may not be exactly what I wanted to do. So I went the, uh, the more commercial route. I mean, I still love the water. I still love ships and, and being out on the water and traveling. So I took on the, the, the non-military, the commercial gig. And uh, yeah, and that's, that's kind of where I landed after graduation. Still did my reserve duty time two months uh, or one month a year. And I'm sorry, two weeks a year, one weekend a month. 
and fulfilled my military obligation that way. But otherwise, I've been working on my Coast Guard license since graduation. Well, I just think that's, you know, first of all, Chad, I, I'm reminded of when we had the opportunity to tour the Finn Cantieri uh, shipyard in, I forget the name of that city, but my Lord, I mean, the the size of these Great Lakes vessels is true. I mean, these are, these are you know, some of the most massive vessels, I think, out there. And um, they're right there in the Midwest. So being from Wisconsin is definitely does not mean that you're not exposed to like major maritime and uh, shipping activities. But I do think it's so interesting. Go to the Merchant Marine Academy and and decide (laughs) that you wanted to go the commercial route. And what was it like being, you know, you said you went to sea right then. What was that like? I mean, were you down in the engine room? What, 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 What were your duties like as a as a recent graduate from uh, the Merchant Marine Academy working in the commercial side? One of the benefits of, of going through the Merchant Marine Academy is that you actually, during the four years of school, you actually have to spend one year broken up in six-month increments on merchant vessels to kind of give you a taste for what life is going to be like in the industry when you get out. Part of that is the requirement for the time that you need prior to sitting for your your exam for your Coast Guard license. So I had a taste of it already at school. And then when I graduated, immediately went into into the industry. Um, But even with that experience, it's a bit of a trial by fire. You know, there's a, thankfully it's changing now, but there is, there was at the time and still is to a certain extent, the hyper-masculine picture of the sailor out at sea. and, And that's still present. And that was certainly present when I uh, went into the industry in 98 with like a pipe hanging out of your mouth or something. Right. Right. I'm just trying to get that. I, I'm trying to really understand. It's like a Popeye. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Big sweater. Yep. And, the, uh, and tattoos and, and the whole nine yards. Yes. Um, but that, but that's changed and, and the industry is much more diverse than it was back then, which is fantastic. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it, it was an interesting, thing to get up to speed on coming out of the academy, um, being a young, at the time I was 24, 25 years old when I got out, um, and, and seeing the world. And that was probably what, what opened my eyes the most was flying to uh, locations like Tunisia and Turkey and around the Mediterranean to join the vessel and, and uh, work on board for five or six weeks at a time. Sounds like a great career, a great way to be uh, in your 20s and uh, now more senior now, Chad. And uh, what we want to talk about today are these offshore service vessels, OSVs, as Tyler said in the introduction, a very important component of the U.S. shipping industry. Uh, Introduce our listeners, if you would, to what offshore service vessels are and tell us about this industry. Well, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head in, the, in your earlier description that you look at uh, the oil and gas that, that we utilize and, and consume on a daily basis that powers the lights and the cars and everything else in our society. Well, much of that, not all of it, but much of that comes from offshore wells that are, that are drilled in you know, thousands of feet of water. And these are, are highly specialized platforms and, and feats of engineering, I like to think of them, uh, that perform this work, but they need to be maintained as well. And by maintained, I don't just mean mechanically. I mean, you've got personnel on board. They need supplies. They need fresh water. 
they need fuel on board themselves to power their generators. Um, and they need repair work done by commercial divers, by remote op- operated vehicles, ROVs. And that's where the OSV comes in. OSVs provide the range of services from bringing supplies to these, these rigs, uh, from bringing personnel to and from the rigs, and providing the services for subsea construction, for commercial diving, for inspection services, all that kind of stuff. All of that is provided by by OSVs. And now some of this is, or a lot of this is transferring over to the burgeoning wind sector on the on the East Coast and, and Western Gulf of Mexico as well to a certain degree, but primarily East Coast. So a lot of these same services translate over to that uh, type of industry sector as well. So that in a nutshell, that's what, what an OSV does. So, uh, Chad, paint a picture for our audience in words, obviously, uh, of what an OSV looks like. How big are they? And, you know, are, are these things common? Would you, would you see them uh, in, a, in a kind of a industrial port type of space? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, the, I mean, the size can range anywhere from 120 for a small, like a, a passenger vessel that will bring a crew to and from a, a platform up to an exceeding 400 feet, 500 feet in some cases for the highly complex construction vessels that are, that are working in the areas. Um, and, I mean, you'll see them in the uh, in industrial ports all around the world. I mean, they look, they look like really nice vessels generally. They look like research vessels because you would probably look at it and go, I don't know what that thing does. It may have a large crane on the back, and and uh, you know you can kind of guess what might what activities it might undertake. But uh, otherwise, you don't really know what they're for. For somebody that's not familiar with uh, with the industry, um, they'd be more the more common vessels. Of course, are the cargo vessels that that uh, ply the oceans and and bring all the goods and consumables that, that we uh, enjoy in day to day life to and from their their different ports. I mean, what, what uh, so I was, I was joking before the show with Chad that uh, this is kind of like the, the, the section of the show that, you know, when I was four years old and just obsessed with tractors, I would just want to name every variety of tractor, you know, a front loader, a backhoe, like every type was very interesting to me. But, and I just, you know, OSV is an umbrella term that captures a huge fleet um, but do you have any idea how uh, how many of these vessels are operating on the American shoreline, and uh, you know what what they might you know the, for example the big five hundred footer which you know used for the construction of these things how does that work I mean how 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 do they actually build an offshore let's say oil rig out there I mean how how, how would these vessels go about that process of doing that. Uh, okay, so well, a little bit of a, a misconception there. The offshore construction vessels are generally used for um, pipelines, for laying cables, and things like that. These platforms are usually built and constructed already shoreside, and then where the OSV comes in, they'll tow them out to location and either moor them or assist in in getting them on position where the platform then positions itself using what I mentioned before, dynamic positioning technology. The um, Chad, I think uh, I, I was interested in in uh, your mention of wind power. <clears throat> and I want to note for the listeners out there, 
in the last two weeks, uh, the Bureau of Offshore Energy Management uh, offered the Gulf of Mexico, the entire Gulf of Mexico, unleased areas uh, for lease. Uh, this was a requirement, really, of the Inflation Reduction Act, so that as uh, BOEM moves to expand wind power, the uh, the law required continued uh, leasing in oil and gas. Uh, that lease sale, which, uh, as I said, was in the last 10 days, brought in $198 million in oil and gas uh, bids for leases. Um, they they uh, picked up about 2% of the available territory. I thought that was interesting, uh, just in the state of the industry, that uh, that so little was spent, actually, and so little of the area offered for lease was p- picked up. Uh, in comparison, Tyler, you recall back in February, four point three seven billion dollars was paid for the oil for the wind power leases off of New York, New Jersey area. Four point well, three seven billion. Yeah, we got to just quickly uh, sidebar here. What is going on? Why do you think that is? Well, I, I think. Chad's seeing it coming. Uh, we're going to be aggressively developing wind power in the U.S. There's a lot of money to be made, I think, uh, clearly. And uh, that'll filter down into the world that you are in, Chad. Um, what do you expect in the way of transition from the oil and gas industry, uh, offshore service vessel uh, fleet moving into wind. Can you talk a little bit about what this transition means for the people you work with and care about? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I think that the, so comparing uh, areas off the East Coast and and actually comparing any two areas for potential use for wind power, um, there's a lot of things. It's, it's not just apples to apples. There's different things that have to be considered. When you look at the leases in the Gulf of Mexico, what are the uh, seasonal wind conditions that, that occur there. Does it make sense to put a, a wind farm in those areas versus what you see off of Block Island on the East Coast? And those are obviously very in-depth studies that, that are involved in those locations. So that may account for why it's so big off the East Coast and not so much in the Gulf Coast. Well, I, I, let me just clarify something. The the lease sale that I was talking about in the Gulf of Mexico with the oil and gas leases, uh, they haven't offered the wind power leases in the Gulf yet. They are working on, there's two, but yeah, I'm just comparing. The only thing I was saying is from an industry transition standpoint, it's a little bit indicative about the amount of money that is uh, being invested in developing wind power around the American shoreline versus oil and gas. Now, the oil and gas industry in the Gulf of Mexico is massive and has millions of acres under lease. And uh, I'm sure they don't necessarily need to add to this portfolio, apparently. Um, but that was the comparison I'm making is simply that the magnitude of the funding that's going into wind indicates that the service industry is going to have to catch up to develop and build and service this new industry that's that's soon to arrive, I guess, in the next you know, maybe five years, we'll start to see meaningful projects of, of magnitude. Yeah, that, that's, uh, I absolutely agree. And the, the transition is, I mean, it's ongoing right now. So to your point, the oil and gas sector has been established for, for decades. And there have been a lot of lessons learned on our side for how to build the vessel that's, that's, as applicable as possible for the oil and gas sector that is not yet those lessons are not yet available for offshore wind at this point in time um 
because of the experience here in the in the U.S. is is primarily oil and gas. So in the transition from using these resources, these assets in the wind sector, there's a lot of lessons to be learned. And as we go into this, I mean, we could get into some pretty deep discussions about Jones Act issues and things like that. Um, because right now where the wind sector is looking and has been looking is the knowledge that does exist that they need to develop this sector right now is over in the UK, over in Norway areas where, North Sea areas basically where wind has been established for, for quite a while. Um, so there's a, a, a steep learning curve over here compared to, to over in that area. So how do we ease that transition into from oil and gas to wind here in the U.S.? That's a question that, that remains to be answered. But one of the objectives that I have in my career and my day-to-day work is for some of the lessons that we've learned on the safety side for oil and gas there's, have been written in blood. We, we've learned a lot of hard lessons. And if we can transition those lessons over to the wind sector and prevent that industry from having to relearn those lessons the hard way, then that's, that's success. That's what I do through, I work through with a couple of uh, federal advisory committees and that's exactly what our objective is, is to help transition those lessons from oil and gas over into the wind sector that will be using a lot of the same or very similar assets. What are you thinking about there, Chad, specifically? What what are some le- some lessons that were learned in the oil and gas uh, industry development that are that you're trying to dovetail into offshore wind? Well, I mean, primarily, you know, most recently we always look at uh, at the uh, Deepwater Horizon incident, right? And of course, the risk profile for a wind farm is far far lower than than what you have with with oil and gas and and hydrocarbons, um, but the the same thread applies because you've got vessels working alongside uh, stationary assets, whether it be a wind farm or whether it be uh, a rig. It doesn't matter. You, you've got activities occurring in close proximity to each other, so there's always going to be a risk of something occurring, whether it be a collision, elision, um, or something of that nature. So th- those are the lessons that I think about frequently. And, and again, this ties back into the whole dynamic positioning topic that I, I touched on earlier, that being having that as my focus for the last 20 plus years, those are the incidents that I'm most aware of. Um, those are the lessons that I want other sectors to learn from. And it expands into simultaneous operations, which is a phrase we use in the industry as well, working alongside other platforms, other assets, and making sure that we do that with all due consideration of the risks that you're undertaking when you're doing so. Chad, you mentioned some of the complexities in the transition, uh, the safety lessons learned being one. The other one, you mentioned the Jones Act, and I'd like to, I would like to delve into that just a bit. Uh, this is a very important uh, federal statute that governs the ownership and crewing of vessels in America. Uh, broadly speaking. And uh, as my understanding is that um, Congress has made clear that the Jones Act will be uh, applied to the uh, wind power industry. Can you introduce, give our uh, 
our uh, listeners a little bit of a taste of the Jones Act's in, uh, details and, and how you think it might uh, affect the future of OSVs for wind. Yeah, so as you said, the Jones Act um, affects what vessels are used in what locations, um, what activities they can undertake, uh, what they can transport from point A to point B, uh, specifically for the U.S. Uh, economic zone. And in a nutshell, what it is, is that if a any commercial goods that are transported from a U.S. port to a U.S. port uh, has to be on a U.S. flag vessel built in the U.S. and manned by U.S. personnel. A lot more details to it, as you know, but that's that's essentially what it is in a nutshell. Um, that, because of, of the Offshore Continental uh, Lands Act, um, OXLA, the, uh, I'm sorry, Offshore Continental Shelf Lands Act, OXLA, um, that was applied to oil and gas as well. And wording within OXLA, was that the Jones essentially the Jones Act applied to the extraction of mineral energy sources, whatever the wording is, um, on the outer continental shelf. So that then enveloped oil and gas and the use of OSVs and 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 whatnot. Um, but that wording was specifically mineral and did not pertain pertain to to non-mineral renewable whatever you want to call it, energy sources such as, as wind farms. Uh, Oxla has now been changed, revised a bit, to be more general in, in its terminology. So now it effectively applies to the wind sector as well. So this now we're talking about, okay, what can a foreign flag vessel do in a wind farm area uh, in, within the U.S. economic zone? I mentioned earlier that the experience for the wind sector is coming from the North Sea area over in Europe and the UK. And they've been doing this for decades already. They are bringing that experience over here on their vessels to assist energy companies in developing wind farms off the east coast of the U.S. Now that becomes a bit more of a, of a complex situation. They can pick things up from the seafloor, but they can't move with them when they have them on the hook, whether it's a crane hook or on the deck of the vessel, they can't move now with it. So we have to look at, do we build the vessels, the OSVs that are capable of doing these same things, or do we find a workaround? Do we use um, uh, things like barges, where you can bring the barge out to the location, a U.S. flag barge, a foreign flag vessel can pick something up from the seafloor, drop it on the barge. The barge can then be moved over to another location and picked up from there. Just one of the workarounds that they've looked at. Okay, hang hang on a second. Well, that sounds like a bunch of crap. <laughs> you don't mind me say. So, I mean, the Jones Act is an important law, and it's meant to. What it means is that, as you said, the the vessels are owned and built in the United States. That's important for working people on the American shoreline. That those jobs and vessels will be built and crewed. Uh, and owned by American companies. And I, obviously, the tension that that creates is uh, we're not quite sure how to build them. We've not built them in the U.S., uh, nor have we operated them. So I, I get the idea that the skills of the North Sea Fleet folks is going to be pretty damn good. But um, can't we, rather than the workaround, can't we just 
do it and build it and crew it and make them U.S.? I mean, you know, do we have the shipbuilding capacity or what's the problem? Why would we want to work around? Absolutely, we have the capacity to do it. There's no no doubt about that. I mean, the wind vessels are no more complex than than the high spec vessels that are used in oil and gas. So that's that's not the issue. I think where some of the issue comes from is is the experience. So we have some of the best mariners in the world. We have the best offshore industrial personnel in the world. Training can cover what we need to as far as specialized skills for that sector. But there's still the experience factor that's involved in it. And, and I totally agree with you. There's a certain level of, as we start digging into the details of what the Jones Act allows and what it doesn't allow, there's a certain level of, of, of BS that you have to get through. And, and, it, and the slippery slope argument is always in place. But I think that regardless of how you look at it, experience is still, is still a factor. Could we just build the vessels here? Absolutely. Could we use personnel from here? Absolutely. No problem there. But there is the experience factor of, you know, I talked about lessons learned from the oil and gas sector applied to wind farms. Well, what about the same lessons this, or similar lessons learned from offshore wind in foreign areas being applied over here? It's the same kind of a thing. We don't want to relearn some of the hard lessons lose people, uh, lose property, damage the environment if we don't have to do it. If we can learn that lesson, then it's much better if we if we do so. Um, and also, just to throw in a little logistics thing here, the we can build the vessels, but if we don't have the purpose-built vessels for the sector, you're looking at a minimum of three to five years to have some of those vessels start coming out of the shipyard if we ordered them today. There can be some transition of current uh, OSVs in the oil and gas sector, but there are going to be some specialized equipment. The uh, I can talk about the walk-to-work stuff if you like. There's going to be some specialized equipment that needs to be installed on these vessels. And if we do it from scratch in the U.S., there's going to be a bit of a runway that we need in order to get there. And that would slow us down, and we're, we're trying to go fast. I mean, I think that that's the... That's the thing here is we don't have forever. We're trying to transition our damn energy infrastructure over to something that's not as polluting. Offshore wind, Peter, is so exciting now. The reason why there's all this energy in it, no pun intended, is because you can really generate a lot of clean power offshore. And so it's the, 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 the issue of the Jones Act is, just seems to always come up, Chad. And to me, what it sounds like you're saying is... Uh, if we want to get this thing moving fast, we're going to need some workarounds, at least in the near term, while the U.S. Uh, fleet gets built up and while the U.S. crews become uh, knowledgeable in how to do this kind of new thing that we don't currently do. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I'm sure there would be people that would argue a different way, but no, I, I totally agree with that. That's that's exactly the the issue that we're facing. So, Chad, earlier on, you, you've, in a couple times, you've referenced dynamic positioning. What is dynamic positioning and, and why is it important? As, uh, so as oil and gas exploration got further and further offshore, oil and gas drilling got further and further offshore, uh, you ran into an issue. You can only have you know, so many feet of anchor chain that, that will hold you to the seafloor while you do your activity. So uh, back in the 50s... Um, 
there's a gentleman by the name of Harold Shadow, who I had the pleasure of knowing prior to his passing a couple of years ago. Unbelievably brilliant man. Um, one of these guys, you know, the old saying that if you're in the if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. This gentleman found himself in the wrong room very, very often. Um, I can't say enough about him. Anyways, he came up with the very first dynamic positioning system, which basically links into satellite GPS positioning and ties it into the thrust capability on board a vessel or on board uh, an offshore uh, drilling platform, an unmoored drilling platform. And it allows these assets to maintain position within within inches in, in calm weather, within three feet, six feet in rough weather. It's it's amazing technology, and it's, it's used across oil and gas and many other sectors today. So basically, you can station keep in the middle of the ocean exactly where you need to be without having to drop an anchor, which is important because when you're building a big complicated thing out there and you've got lots of vessels nearby, they can't all drop anchors because their anchors would get tangled up, I assume. Is that, is that the way it is? Well, that's that's fair, yeah. And uh, not to mention, if you look at the Gulf of Mexico and you see all the, the pipelines that are there, you know, it's it's a spider web. So if you have a an asset that uh, gets caught in a hurricane and starts dragging its mooring lines, um, you have a lot of potential for damage. But from a very practical perspective, if you're drilling in 6,000 feet of water or even deeper, that's a lot of anchor chain that you're going to need to, to keep you in position. And, and it, there's a point where it's no longer practical to have that. And if you can do it without having to deploy any kind of an anchor or having tugs hold you in position, then you've, you've got a very efficient operation. Well, it takes a lot of brilliant people to, uh, to execute the offshore oil and gas industry. It's a very capable industry, as you've said, over many, many decades, lots of hard lessons learned. Uh, innovation is required in the sector all the time and in the emerging wind power industry, another example of that. But there's also sort of the programmatic and the policy universe of this stuff. And uh, Chad, I wanted to ask you about one of your new initiatives that you've undertaken. Uh, you are the founder of what is called Chaos Ready, an organization that uh, may make innovative uses of this uh, offshore service vessel fleet. Uh, introduce, if, uh, in, in introduce us, if you would, to Chaos Ready. Yeah, so uh, my pleasure. Um, Chaos Ready is an initiative that I started uh, well, I mean, I started actually a few years ago now, but this is a, a slow process. You know, I've, I've got a day job, so this is kind of a passion project that I've been working on for a while. And the idea being that we've, we've talked now for, uh, for a while about the capabilities of these different offshore uh, service vessels, uh, their industrial missions, and, and kind of the span of activities that it might cover. And I started getting the impression, and this kind of started around 2015-16, where the downturn in the oil and gas sector resulted in a lot of these OSVs being cold stacked or being shut off and tied up to the pier, not to be used again for, in some cases, years. In some cases, they, they simply went to the scrapyard. Um, and my thought was, well, there must be better uses for these vessels. There must be better uses for the individuals that operated them, um, you know, employing offshore professionals and, and putting these, these uh, again, I call them engineering marvels, putting them to use. And 
then, you know, along, during that same period, we had hurricanes Rita, Hurricane Maria, um, you name it. We had a number of hurricanes that impacted Houston and areas around the Gulf of Mexico. Puerto Rico especially has been hit. And, you know, even in the last couple of days, they've been hit again. So what I wanted to do was uh, I thought, why can't we leverage these assets, whether active or inactive, to kind of assist in providing aid to these affected populations. Um, right now, the, the primary responding agency is, is military, uh, basically. Um, in fact, there's a, a number that sticks in my head that between uh, 1979 and 2000, uh, U.S. military forces have been diverted from their original mission 366 times for humanitarian assistance compared to 22 times for combat. So it's very clear to me that, that there's a need there for a supplemental source of, of support. And given how capable OSVs are and other marine assets, but primarily OSVs, why can't we use those in a manner to call them up during the time of an emergency to help support uh, populations affected by disasters. So Chad, talk a little bit about what that would look like. I mean, say there's a, I mean, what, what examples do you use when you, when you think about this and how could OSVs aid in response? So when you look at um, uh, Marine Traffic is a fantastic website. If you want to see where vessels are located at any given time, and it gives a really good broad perspective on it. And it, it shows you where our marine resources are at any given time. And it's very obvious from a, a, just a glance at it that it's global. And these assets include OSVs working in offshore oil and gas and research and the offshore wind sector. So the idea here is that when we also, we have AIS available already, automatic identification system for vessels. So the idea with, Chaos Ready is to kind of piggyback off of existing technology such as AIS. And rather than tell you where a vessel is, you can instead locate a capability that you require. So following an earthquake, let's say, uh, there is damage to a port facility that requires a crane to clear the, the area out. A responding entity, whether that be in the U.S., it's FEMA. In other areas, there's there's response entities, federal and 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 non-governmental. They can look at an, at uh, what will be an app that Chaos Ready provides, and input the capabilities that they're looking for, and then the result will be, okay, you've got a subsea construction vessel with a crane of 250 ton capacity that's located in the region. And you can open up the lines of communication to that vessel and work with the owner operator to bring that vessel in to assist um, and, and help you recover and, and begin the process earlier than if you had to wait for a specialized asset to come in, which may take days or weeks. So the idea is that there's this massive group of trained uh, coastal uh, uh, mar mariners and a whole bunch of shipping assets. And in a crisis or in a time of uh, dire need, uh, the idea is to coordinate the availability of that private sector fleet uh, to respond. Is that my following it? That's exactly it. The one, the one uh, additional thing I would say is that 
there wouldn't be a whole lot of additional training required because the vessel's not being called to do an activity that it doesn't normally undertake. It's just that that activity is normally applied for its industrial mission in the in oil and gas or, or whatever industry it is. It's just using that capability in a slightly different application. But the activity itself is is the same as what it always is. So you are the founder of Chaos Ready. And uh, as I understand it, you're in the process now of developing uh, this company into a 501c3. Uh, tell us a little bit more about what inspired you for it. What, what do you hope to accomplish with Chaos Ready? Do you think there's a market? How's that for three questions? Um, well, I'll take the only one I remember first. Um, I, I think that <laughs> I, I believe there's a market for it, yes. Um, today, I, I, in fact, I just had a phone call with a gentleman in the UK who works with an industry organization whose assistance I'm looking for in, in getting this uh, moved forward. And uh, to the individual, the interest has been there. It's That's not to say that it would go smoothly because there's a lot of other concerns to, to address. There's commercial concerns. You're asking vessel owners and operators to uh, provide their money-making assets for what may not necessarily be a money-making endeavor. And you also have to deal with the rules that apply to what a vessel can and can't do. In the U.S., it's the various subchapters that apply to vessels that undertake industrial missions versus those that undertake oil and gas missions, um, just as an example. So again, the market is there. There's definitely going to be the obstacles to overcome. What I'm trying to do from the outset is to make it clear that the idea is not um, disaster capitalism. That's not what we're trying to do here. It's simply trying to do the right thing with resources and capabilities that are already available to the industry and applying it for a um, more, more altruistic purpose. Totally. And also, I've got to say that, you know, efficiency, I guess, is kind of a capitalistic concept. Uh, but it's also an important concept when you're responding to a natural disaster, because that means time. And, you know, I just think that, you know, Chad, one of the things that comes to mind, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I bet when you were at the Merchant Marine Academy, one of the things that you were taught is like the types of, uh, aid that that you just render when you're at sea like if if another vessel's going down my understanding is like other vessels come to assist it's it's like a it's a code i don't know if it's law but i know that like that is what you that is what you're supposed to do you're you know when i was out sailing peter in the caribbean and we would listen to the coast guard you know radio and occasionally they'd say hey keep an eye out for a, a particular vessel that's missing and you're supposed to do that. You know, that's not, you're, you're really supposed to look out for that vessel. And so to me, this is kind of an extension of that same ethos, Chad, you know, like rendering assistance and providing what assistance you can. Is that kind of, would you agree that there's already a little bit of a culture to do this? Absolutely. And, and that is a law, by the way, that, yeah, if, if you're available and in the vicinity, you will render assistance to another vessel. But that's that's a, a distinguishing factor. There is is it applies to other vessels, other floating assets, not necessarily to providing aid to uh, shoreside regions, shoreside populations. So that's not 
quite the same thing, but it, it absolutely does apply in this in, in this situation. It's the spirit of like humanity behind it that I think is so, uh, co- you know, that, that, that is the, the, the common thread. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Well, you know, right now in uh, Puerto Rico is, is suffering from the consequences of another hurricane hit and uh, the ability to uh, bring supplies to port, water, food, that kind of stuff. Uh, Chad, is that, is that in line with the nature of the work that you think could be undertaken by the private OSV fleet? Yeah, I mean, it's it would be limited, but it's absolutely what they can do. Um, many of these vessels are equipped with water makers and carry, in fact, one of their missions uh, in supplying offshore platforms is to bring potable water out to the vessel, out to the, the platform. So they have the capability not just to, to bring it over and supply it directly shoreside, but also to be there and, and to assist in, in, in making fresh water uh, in the near offshore coastal area. Um, in the response to the Bahamas a few years ago, there were a couple of, of U.S. flag, um, uh, I'll call them OSVs, they were actually jack-up vessels, but they went over there carrying um, water makers that were then brought ashore and used to assist in, in resupplying the fresh water to, to the islands. Well, it's called Chaos Ready. Uh, Chad, when will folks be able to learn more, take a look? Is there a website yet? What's your rollout schedule? That's a tough one. Um, well, the so first of all, there is a website. Uh, we don't exactly have it up and running yet, but there is a, a page marker there, and, and people can contact us through that website, and it's called chaosready.org. So you can certainly reach us there. And as far as a rollout goes, I'm having meetings, if not every day, certainly every week with different players. I'm, I'm working hand-in-hand with a uh, company called Apogee.Earth, and they are providing the tech side of this for for Chaos Ready, helping me with the geos, geospatial requirements that I need for using AIS and all that fun stuff. Um, I'm learning a lot of new words uh, in this process. And uh, yeah, and, and that's, it, it, I'm hoping to have something, we're hoping to have something that's available in uh, in some form or fashion by hurricane U.S. hurricane season next year. So we'd like to have something rolled out by June of 2023. Fabulous initiative, uh, and we wish you well. Uh, it would serve an incredible purpose, and uh, and I would think raise the uh, the respect uh, for the industry. I think if this were to be successfully executed, boy, the heroic nature of uh, it's a it's this is a good idea. This is what we got to do. It's a no-brainer, Peter. <laughs> it's it's a it's a no-brainer. It is brainer. a no-brainer. It's a great idea, Chad, and we 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 wish you the best with it. Uh, well, I th- wanted to tell you, thank you so much for coming on the American Shoreline Podcast. We'd love to give our we always love to give our guests a final word. Uh, maybe the most interesting thing that you're thinking about professionally these days. Uh, what's on your mind? Um, oh boy, you guys should have given me a heads up on this one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's a surprise question. It's it's always meant to be kind of a twist. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, one of the things that I've, uh, beyond Chaos Ready, I mean, it's certainly involved in that, but beyond this is always looking at, at what we have already available to us. You know, we're, we're always concerned with creating the new what's next. 
and making something new and, um, you know, in effect, consuming more to create something for the public to, to consume. And what I want to kind of push with, with Chaos Ready and, and in other aspects of, of what I do professionally is a lot of times we have the resources available to us already. It's just a matter of, of seeing it and recognizing the capability that it has inherent, perhaps, something that you haven't recognized already. But I think it's there, and that especially applies to the professionals we have in the industry. There's an expectation that certain folks are trained to do a certain job, and that's all. And there's much more capability there inside. And these people are capable of a lot more and can do a lot more if only they're asked to do so. So let's take a look around us before we start uh, wanting to reinvent things. And again, learn lessons that have already been learned. You know, get out of the box, right? Uh, that's what we need to do. Get out of the box. Think originally. We're each our own little OSV, Peter. Coastal professionals, <laughs> ocean professionals out there. You know, you right. know your capabilities. It's not just what your operational mission is in this moment. Your your capabilities are beyond that. And Chad, I, I thank you for uh, bringing that perspective to the show. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Chad Furman. He is a consultant, a mariner, an engineer, a writer, an excellent writer. Check him out on the Maritime Executive, an incredibly good journal that he writes frequently for. He is the founder of Chaos Ready and one of the great professionals on the American shoreline. Chad, thanks for introducing us to what you do and and, uh, the vision you have for the future on the American shoreline. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, gentlemen. Thank you as well. Take one, brother.